Hi there. Welcome back to Health Law Diagnosed. This is Bridget Keller, your podcast host. Listeners, we are picking up of part two of our enforcements episode that we can focus on an important topic, the DOJ's recent regulatory and policy update. Owen, I'd love for you to share with our listeners a little bit about DOJ's changing approach to charging, pleas, and sentencing, and how this might impact the FCA landscape. Sure. So as you mentioned, there, there have been sort of a steady stream of memos and policy updates and speeches coming from DOJ, mainly from the Deputy Attorney General, Lisa Monaco, and then the Assistant Attorney General in charge of the Criminal Division, Kenneth Polite. I don't know if it's been more steady stream or like a bass drumbeat. I think in each of the last four months, there's been some new pronouncement or sort of an evolution of a prior one. But it's kind of a a reinvigoration, I think, of a lot of the Obama-era policies, a lot of them that came out under various Obama attorneys general. But the, the basic goal is to get companies to self-report wrongdoing and incentivizing them to do it by providing real benefits, concrete benefits to companies that are willing, once they discover some wrongdoing internally, to go to DOJ before DOJ knows about it, or you know, perhaps HHS, OIG, or any regulator, and disclose this and then get some benefit for doing that, right? I think they rolled it out under the Obama administration and there wasn't much interest. Companies thought, I don't know what we're going to get from this, so it's too risky. So there's been this sort of iterative sweetening of the pot or increasing of the carrots. And then with, with all the while, you know, not so vague reference to the stick, meaning if you don't do this, we're going to clobber you on the back end with it. So, you know, in this instance, and I think just to take a step back, a, a lot of this is driven by, you know, the government has increasingly good analytics, which especially work well in the healthcare space where providers are billing the government. They're able to track that. They're able to look for statistical anomalies. They're able then to commence investigations, but ultimately it's a resources issue. They need people to sort of evaluate the data, start investigations, go out and conduct witness interviews and all the rest. All that takes an awful lot of time. And I think as good as they are at it, the government still realizes that it's only getting at a very small percentage of all the fraud that's occurring. So they're trying to balance you know, their statutory obligation to deter wrongdoing and find a happy medium to both deter wrongdoing, but show that you know if you have engaged in wrongdoing, and you do all the right things after that, you know, th there'll be some reward or at least the punishment will be less bad. So I, there's an awful lot of detail and, and there was an awful lot of significant changes and, and updates in the various pronouncements in the last four months. And I'm not going to try and cover them all in the time we have today, but I commend you again to the blog posts and other thought leadership on our website uh, that does go into an awful lot of detail and refers you then to the, the source material if you want to go that deep. But First, we had in December was the, the Garland memo issued by Merrick Garland, the attorney general who was himself a former federal judge. And I think what you see in that memo is a lot of a lot of his time as a judge being brought to bear in him giving guidance to the rest of the Department of Justice. He's asking for prosecutors to sort of use their discretion, bring a sense of proportion to charging decisions and to sentencing decisions. And this is really a change from the Trump and Bush era directive, which is charge all the readily provable offenses and especially those with the highest possible guideline sentences. Essentially, charge the max you can, prove it all, and go for it, right? What Garland is saying in his memo is, take a step back from that, try and find what you think the right charge is, and you have discretion 
to find the right charge. Much like judges have discretion now that the sentencing guidelines aren't mandatory, he wants prosecutors to use their discretion to find the right charge, conduct an individualized you know, assessment of, of the wrongdoing, and then you know, do what they're supposed to do, not just you know, slam people to the wall or companies to the wall. So I think the defense community saw that as a real benefit, especially in the representation of individuals who obviously companies can be fined and, and caused great anguish, but individuals can be, can be put in prison. So this provides for a lot of pre-charge advocacy. Another big point that Garland made, which I think is very admirable, is that he said additional charges can't be filed or threatened simply to leverage a plea agreement. And this is, unfortunately, it's become a classic tactic of federal prosecutors is to say, here, plead guilty today to crime A, and I'll lay off on charging you with crimes B and C, which will throw your guidelines through the roof. Unfortunately, that puts a lot of defendants, you know, in a, in a having a Hobson choice to, to, to save themselves and save the, you know, and it, it results in a lot of cases not going to trial that probably should. So that was the Garland memo. I think in this context, probably the next few are a little bit more interesting in that they apply more directly to the corporate world. And, and so in January, Assistant Attorney General Kenneth Polite announced revisions to the corporate enforcement policy. And this was a policy that was first enacted back in, I think, 2016. And this is really where the government introduced this notion of, of self-disclosure through a series of sort of carrots and sticks. And since 2016, there haven't been a lot of instances where companies have availed of it. The government has, you know, kind of rolled out little iterative improvements to it or sweetenings of the pot. And we keep waiting for them to make, you know, examples of the good guys to hold them up on a pedestal and say, if you do this, here are the rewards that'll come to you. And if you don't do it, you know, here's what's going to happen to you. There have been examples of the latter because it is very few companies that are willing to self-disclose. But what they'll say is, you know, here's a company that didn't self-disclose. We didn't think their cooperation was very good. They didn't really remediate. They don't have a good compliance policy, so we threw the book at them. They've sort of highlighted the stick repeatedly, but we've yet to see a good example of the carrot working. But what this memo did in, in or it was actually a speech, I think, in January, what came of that was more transparency, more credible and concrete benefits for doing what the government wants. And in this instance, what they said was, if a company voluntarily self-discloses before the government knows about any wrongdoing, fully cooperates, and that's more on that later, and then timely remediates, meaning you know, disgorge any ill-gotten profits, that there'll be a presumption of a declination. So if, if you're a company that you know, has committed a crime, you know it, you go to government, you do all these things, there is a presumption that the government will decline to require a guilty plea from you, which is incredibly important for a lot of companies. What this memo went even further and did was prior iterations of it said, you know, that's all good and that will be the case as long as there are not aggravating factors, whatever those are. And it didn't define them, but it did say, you know, such things like involvement of all of the or a lot of the executives, you know, pervasiveness throughout the company, egregiousness of the conduct. These might be aggravating factors that even if you self-disclose, remediate, cooperate, all the rest, you're not going to get a declination. We're still going to insist on some slap on the wrist. But here they actually define that and they said, even if there's aggravating factors, and even if we do, we may not require a criminal resolution, but if there's some sort of penalty or damages required, here is a tangible reduction, right? And there's sort of a sliding scale based on how your cooperation looks, but it, it is meaningful. It's up to 50% off whatever fine or damages may be imposed if you cooperate. 
However, right, there's always sort of a however with these guys. If there are aggravating circumstances, again, which aren't defined, but they gave some examples of what that means, you may still get a declination, but to get it, it requires immediate self-disclosure, right? It requires that you demonstrate that you had an effective compliance program that, that detected this wrongdoing and, and surfaced it, and here you are now you know, disclosing it to the government. And it requires another undefined term, extraordinary cooperation. So this, to me, almost creates an impossible situation. If you think about it, so a company discovers wrongdoing, it believes there are aggravating factors. So now it's got to self-disclose immediately, and it's got to you know, provide extraordinary cooperation. And what are aggravating factors? Things like you know, executives being involved in pervasiveness through the company. I just can't think of a scenario where that is realistic, where a company where executives are involved or all this other stuff has happened, and they're going to decide to immediately cooperate and or immediately self-disclose and cooperate. So in, in sort of sweetening the pot, I think the government has actually, in, in this aspect of it, made it far less likely that a company that discovers aggravating factors is going to be capable of self-disclosing. You know, so just, just to pause for a second here before I kind of continue the rest of them, I mean, this whole notion of self-disclosure is very interesting. I know we've talked about it for years. It is rare that a company, even if it has a very effective compliance program, you know, has some wrongdoing, discovered internally, it gets surfaced. Maybe they constitute a special committee of the board and the board is deciding really quickly whether to self-disclose. I've certainly had situations where I've apprised companies of the benefits and, and this is occasionally before these benefits were tangibly rolled out like they are now, but you know, a little bit since. But I've had in my career and in, in 20 years of doing this, I've had one company decide to self-disclose to the government before we knew the government had any idea about it. They really wanted to. They thought they'd be able to explain the wrongdoing. We talked to all the risks. We we called up our local U.S. attorney's office and we, you know, we self-disclosed. And and what did that cost? That caused the government to open up a file and start sending subpoenas. And you know, two years later, and and after two years of torture, I think the company regretted it. I think they wished they had not self-disclosed and instead just finished their internal investigation and closed the books and and waited to see what happens. Ultimately, there was a good resolution there, but I bet if the company had to do it again, they probably wouldn't. So I'll turn it to Brian and Bridget and Karen. Have you guys in, in your careers gone through this analysis and, and had companies you know, decide to self-disclose with the warp speed that the government now seems to require? Well, um, I, you know, I can address that. I mean, Brian and I are typically working on the civil side. So it's a, you know, slightly different situation, although sometimes we are doing, you know, parallel investigations. But I have never had a situation where the company has made a self-disclosure in the context of a false claims that case, because I think, and I'm not saying this tongue in cheek, I actually think it's true. I mean, the client often sees the conduct very different from the government and doesn't believe that it has done anything wrong, you know, that would rise to the level of false claims act violation. So, I mean, in my view, it seems really unfair because it's almost a, like taking away your option to defend yourself and your conduct. And, you know, to me, that seems really antithetical to what the justice system's all about. Brian, have you ever had an occasion to self-disclose wrongdoing? I have once. Yeah. The company, um, through its compliance program, had identified an issue and took advantage of, of one of the self-disclosure protocols on, on the civil side that's available. So we, we did do an internal investigation and made a submission 
through the protocol, but just one one time. And obviously, in the civil context, as I said, not the criminal context. To OIG, to the self-disclosure, the OIG. Yes. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's true to OIG. Yeah. Well, I've had, I've had many of those, but I have not had a client disclose in the context of, an, of a false claims act investigation that is underway. No, I agree. I have, I have not either. Well, what's, what's been the timing in each of your instances of doing that from your phone rings, client says, hey, we've discovered this thing. You start talking it through to when somebody actually drops a dime to, to OIG. Well, what's been that period of time that's, that's played out? It's not immediate. I can say that. No. Because <laughs> you need to do a factual investigation, which you know, takes time. You have to do witness interviews. You need to look at documents. You need to do a legal analysis. So it's not something that, you know, I, I think it'd be a real challenge to meet that sort of undefined immediately standard because it does take time to get your arms around whatever issue might be and, and then strategize about how you might handle it. That's exactly right, Brian. And it was my first thought too. You know, we've obviously considered on numerous occasions various disclosures on civil side of, you know, compliance issues or taking advantage of the self-disclosure protocols. But the immediacy that you're talking about, oh, and in the warp speed that the government is really looking for, I mean, that is not something that I've had experience achieving on the civil side. Yeah, I think it's really, really difficult to live up to this standard that they're putting out there. A few more things to cover. Uh, one sort of minor one. A lot of what we've been talking about is comes out of the criminal division. And they say, DOJ that is, says, you know, this this guidance only applies to cases that are that you're, you're actually dealing with the criminal division on. But um, I have found over the years when these pronouncements are made, you can certainly make the same arguments to the U.S. Attorney's Office, even though they never sort of provide you with substantive rights. They certainly provide you with some good principles to go in and argue. However, in this instance, the DOJ did follow up in February and said that these voluntary disclosure rules and this transparency and concreteness that they're trying to provide for self-disclosure does in fact apply to all components of the DOJ, including all whatever 93 U.S. attorneys' offices. Um, it does, interestingly, provide for sort of some wiggle room where there's kind of a core set of principles that each U.S. attorney's office's policy has to contain, but it does allow for some some leeway for for different offices to have slightly different versions of the policy, which I, I don't understand. I mean, I, I suppose it must be due to sort of geographic issues where, you know, a case in Texas may resolve differently from a case in California or Alaska, whatever it may be. And obviously within the department, you know, our components have argued to be able to have that leeway. I'd be more in favor of a, a standard standard across the entire justice department, but it's not yet to be. Still steps in the right direction. The very last thing I want to cover is this resulted from a, a series of speeches. It was two days in a row at a conference in Miami in March, uh, again, first from Deputy AG Lisa Monaco and then from Kenneth Polite. And these are, again, related to the same corporate enforcement policy, but it, it related to compliance programs. Lisa Monaco announced a pilot program in that any company that resolves a case with the criminal division for the next three years while this pilot program is playing out must institute a clawback policy as part of its compliance program. And that means that it is required in the event of any you know, future wrongdoing to have a policy that says those who were overseeing whatever department, you know, all the way up to the C-suite, need to have compensation clawed back from them as part of a, a compliance program. And it also says it will reward and provide benefits to companies that proactively put uh, a policy like that in place. Meaning if you're in process of resolving a case with the criminal division, 
and you seek to claw back compensation paid to executives, you can then turn around to DOJ and say, look what we did, and they'll essentially give you a discount of that amount. So I think this new policy is sort of, it, it's not yet completely clear how it plays in with the prior announcements, you know, the presumptive declination, if you go in and do all the things, is this an additional discount, right? If you have aggravating factors and you do all the things at warp speed and you provide extraordinary cooperation and then you claw back, you know, does it provide an additional discount? It's TBD. But again, we'll be we'll be keeping our eyes out for examples that I know the government is trying to make of companies that avail of these policies. And then the last one that I actually found one of the most interesting and reflective of a lot of what we see in our own investigations was an expression of a real frustration on the part of DOJ when it issues subpoenas or when it's trying to do its own evidence gathering or when companies are coming to it having you know conducted their own internal investigations and saying here we are to self report here's all the information isn't our cooperation perfect and the DOJ says well where's all the information that your employees are exchanging with one another on their personal devices using all of these ephemeral messaging apps you know signal telegram whatsapp text messages whatever and the company's typical response, and it's it's had to be ours on occasion, is those are employees' devices. You know, we can't go and get that stuff. And and the government has now said, we don't care. You have to go get that stuff. You will not be given cooperation credit unless you figure out how to get that stuff. And we're not going to take at face value you telling us you just can't because employees don't want you imaging their phones and looking at their baby pictures and whatnot. You know, you need to now put a policy in place to be able to go and get that stuff or prevent employees from uh, from using it on their personal devices. But in order to get any cooperation credit, we're not talking about extraordinary credit, you know, the, the typical credit. And this is this applies even if, if you haven't self-reported, if you are a company that gets a subpoena and, and you are collecting all of the responsive documents and providing them to the DOJ and, you know, you, you want to sort of check in and, and get a sense for whether they view you as being cooperative and, and ensuring that you're getting all the credit you're entitled to, you know, the government's position is now going to be if you're not going and getting all this stuff from your employees and turning it over to us, you're not getting credit. So this is going to be a real challenge. Um, it, it has been a challenge, but the government has really sort of bared its teeth a little bit on this issue recently. Have you guys, Brian, Karen, Bridget, have you dealt with this issue in in you know, conducting document collections in response to CIDs or, or HIPAA subpoenas in the past? Increasingly, yes. I mean, typically, you know, years ago, you you look for emails and that was principally where most of the communications are located. That certainly remains true that, uh, you know, we're talking about, especially the last few years, emails are, are just a slice of it. There's Slack messaging, there's WhatsApp, you know, you name it, all the ephemeral messaging platforms as well. You mentioned, Owen, um, so it's increasingly a challenge. There's a lot of um, concern, as you noted, of both employees having their phones images, imaged. So increasingly, having you know dealt with some of these matters in responding to CIDs, we're we're now you know proactively increasingly advising clients to put in place you know policies about acceptable use for personal devices, the ability to access ephemeral messaging, access personal devices, those sorts of things. So. I think those are things companies should be thinking about now, you know, even before they get any, um, whether it's a enforcement or even litig civil litigation discovery requests, put in place the policies, how do, how do you manage all of the various messaging services and personal devices? I mean, I, I would certainly echo that. I mean, 
employees are increasingly using personal phones as opposed to phones issued by the company. Regardless of what you tell employees at the outset of an investigation about, you know, preserve your text, preserve your voicemails, they're subject to, you know, a document hold notice, you're going to encounter mighty resistance every time you want to image someone's phone. And so I think having a policy and publicizing it and making sure employees understand that if they use their personal phone for work purposes, that it is going to be subject to being, you know, imaged or searched. I actually had in an investigation recently, I had an employee who was the pivotal person at the company in the investigation who got his own counsel and you know, he refused to make his phone available no matter, you know, what safeguards were put into place. And so, you know, I had to tell the government that this person refused and and he knew he was subjecting himself potentially to a CID himself, but was apparently not concerned. So it, it's a very thorny area for investigations, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely right. It's a it's a very thorny area. And what I'm telling clients when I'm talking to them is, you know, no client ever expects to be investigated, but but this in particular is a policy that it's worth putting in place now to secure your data. I mean, in, in these highly regulated industries like we're talking about, I mean it, it is a it is a HIPAA risk to have your employees using personal devices to communicate. And and in the post COVID world, as you mentioned, Karen, everyone grew to use these their personal device, not their desk phone or not their work email. But it is really something that I think that of all the pronouncements, this is something that companies should be aware of and, and should implement a little tweak to their policy for, for this and other reasons right now. But I think these are all positive developments. I think it provides a lot of opportunity. I welcome them all. I look forward to seeing the company uh, that avails of the, the warp speed, extraordinary cooperation requirement and and reading about uh, how that process works to the extent uh, we're able to find out about it, because I'm sure the DOJ will want to put that company up on a pedestal once one company is willing to do it. Oh, absolutely, Owen. I, I'm I'm really interested to see that. I'm I feel like sometimes that I I can picture a conference keynote or some sort of presentation that uses them as an example and you know sort of explains how the process might work. So definitely, we'll be keeping a lookout for that. Karen, Brian, Owen, I can't thank you enough for joining us today. This discussion and both discussions have been very interesting. I know our listeners will be looking forward to future newsletters. And listeners, if you have any questions for our guests today or suggestions for topics you'd like to hear us discuss, please email us at healthlawdiagnosed at mints.com. I'm Bridget Killer, and this was Health Law Diagnosed.